Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. My only view there is that we could not have made the progress we made if we had done what they wanted us to do. The voice you just heard was that of Bayard Rustin. He was a black man who was an influential leader in the U.S. civil rights movement. Although many people likely think first of Martin Luther King Jr. when they think of advocates of nonviolent resistance to racism, and although Rustin's leadership was often downplayed, in part because he was gay, it's a mistake to overlook Rustin. Indeed, he advised King on the philosophy and practice of organized nonviolence. In that quote, Rustin was referring to black activists who wanted to replace nonviolent resistance with violence. And Rustin was skeptical that the movement would have been as successful as it was had it turned that way. King was also skeptical of violence, advocating nonviolence throughout his life. For instance, in one sermon, he quoted another influence on his thinking, Gandhi. And the quote begins, If you are hit, don't hit back. Even if they shoot at you, don't shoot back. If they curse you, don't curse back. But just keep moving. End quote. In recent months, many have made claims about the morality and effectiveness of violent and nonviolent protests. In the mass media, these conversations have revolved around protests of racial injustices, especially in response to the killing of George Floyd. But the question of how effective nonviolent and violent protests are is also the focus of a widely discussed political science article. And it's an article that's been the subject of controversy. Because of that controversy and because of the article's timeliness, its author has been interviewed by such outlets as the Chronicle of Higher Education and by The New Yorker. The author, Omar Wasso, earned his undergraduate degree at Stanford and his PhD at Harvard. The Aspen Institute awarded him the Henry Crown Fellowship, and he's now an assistant professor of politics at Princeton. He recently spoke with me about his background, the paper, the implications of the paper for contemporary activists, as well as reactions to the paper, and more. I now share our conversation in this episode, which is titled, When They Hit You. So, I grew up in a mix of places. I was born in Kenya, um, and my father was an economist. My mother was working to help start a national dance company in Kenya. And so my you know, early years of life are outside of the United States. My parents then moved to Puerto Rico for a year, um, and then ultimately grew up in New York City. And so New York is home, but, um, but I was also a bit of a, uh, an outsider as a kid in that I, there are things that other people just understood about America that took me a while to fully learn. Um, when my, when my dad took me to see Star Wars, I'm, I'm old enough that, uh, you know, I think I was five or six at the time. Um, I didn't understand the distinction between like a fiction film and a documentary. And so I just thought like, that was an amazing film, but it's so sad. All these people had to get killed for, for us to be entertained. <laughs> And I, you know, so, so I think there, there are ways in which it just took me time to really understand America. And in that way, I also, um, you know, it, New York was home, but it, but it, but it was, uh, I, I, I have a bit of an insider outsider perspective on, on the United States. Lest I be presumptuous, do you identify professionally as a political scientist? Because I know uh, from your CV, your PhD is in African and African uh, American studies from Harvard. I do identify as a political scientist, and, and 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 maybe it's helpful to talk a bit about for just a second at Harvard, where I got my PhD in African American studies. The program 
has everybody do training in both a traditional discipline and in African-American studies. And so everybody's an anthropologist and AFAM or a historian and AFAM. And so it, it was sort of normal to be a kind of both end. Um, and, then I, and, and that feels very natural to me. So I'm a political scientist who has training in African-American studies and a PhD in African-American studies. So when you think back to your early years, and you can define early however you want for purposes of answering this question, but when you think back to your early years, do you see anything in those experiences that might have been uh, sort of a harbinger of a future in political science? Yeah, so that's a, that's a good question, Rich. I think there, there, there are two or three things that stand out. So one is I just always had a passion for politics that's sort of partly academic, you know, was doing like AP American government, AP American history, loved those classes, um, but also had a taste for, you know, kind of actual politics as a, as a, as a kind of um, a, a vocation um, and ran for student government, thought I might run for office, was elected student body president. Um, and in college worked for uh, what was the leading uh, black elected official in the country. So, um, William Gray was the head of, uh, he was the House uh, Majority Whip at the time. Um, so uh, this is a congressman from Philadelphia, and I worked in his office as an intern one, uh, one, one semester. And that was a really powerful experience in my deciding not to want to go into politics. Uh, yeah. I just had this, I, you know, it was just sort of, it was like a kind of, I mean, it's nothing particular about Bill Gray, but it was just like, you know, it, you had this sense of uh, the intense raw power and hierarchy of Washington. So as an intern, I had just, I was just constantly reminded of how low status I was. And on top of that, there was a sense of, oh, right, this is something where there's just like, your life is meetings. And I was like, oh, I don't really enjoy meetings. And so I, I just had a sense of, oh, this is probably not a good fit for me. Um, and, and that as so, so in some ways it was a great experience and that it taught me, I probably don't want to be a politician, even though there are aspects of it I enjoy, like public service, like, um, being out there trying to like, you know, speak for causes I care about. Um, but, but there's a lot that, that was unappealing to. So even though you still have to suffer through meetings as an academic, you get to do a lot of writing and writing that is, uh, focused on your interests. And that provides a segue to uh, really the bulk of what I want to talk to you about, which is uh, a paper that you published earlier uh, this calendar year. Uh, the paper's title is Agenda Seeding, How 1960s Black Protests Moved Elites, Public Opinion, and Voting. And so the publication in itself is exciting um, but one thing that's often true of academic papers, uh, no matter which journal they appear in is they have a limited readership. Uh, sometimes nobody reads them. Sometimes if you're lucky, um, maybe dozens of people within the discipline, uh, will read it. Uh, that has not been the fate uh, of this paper, or, although I should be more careful. I should certainly say this paper has gotten a lot of attention. I'm not sure that everyone who's commented on it publicly has read it, but it's gotten a lot of attention outside of the discipline of political science. Uh, so uh, uh, Tom Bartlett featured you recently in the Chronicle of Higher Education. Um, Isaac Chotner interviewed you for The New Yorker. Uh, this is not the typical uh, experience of someone who publishes uh, in an academic journal. Uh, the paper, as the title implies, is about political protest, uh, especially protest for racial justice in the U.S. The paper comes out earlier this calendar year, and then uh, the killing of George Floyd uh, happens, is videotaped, and that obviously precipitates uh, nationwide protests, uh, perhaps even world worldwide protests, and many of those protests played out in scenes of violence. And as we dig deeper, listeners will realize, if they haven't already read your paper, that your paper is quite relevant. Um, before we get into the ideas and the findings, what's the origin story of this paper? So I come to this paper partly through uh, a question that begins when I'm a teenager, which is that I look at the 
kind of era, I, I feel like I'm a child of the civil rights movement, right? My parents were activists. My dad uh, was a part of Freedom Summer, registering voters in Mississippi. He goes down there at a time uh, in, you know, part of a, a, the same wave uh, that results in Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner being murdered. And that looms really large in my life as one of the kind of uh, moral high points in my family's history. And, uh, and I, I, I sort of look at that era and think that there was this incredible wave of both activism, but also success, right? The Civil Rights Act passes, the Voting Rights Act passes. Um, and then I was growing up in New York in the 70s and 80s, and it was a period where things were, uh, you know, felt like something had gone really wrong. Um, and so some of that is there's a, a kind of a crack epidemic. There's a, a but there's also this rise of, uh, you know, broken windows policing and the war on drugs. And as a teenager, I was trying to figure out what went wrong. Like, how did we go from this period of, um, of, of, you know, struggle, but victory to a period where it just felt like law and order and repression had become the dominant mode of, of, of politics. Um, and so after being an entrepreneur for a dozen years and loving that, but really wanting to go deep on these questions, I applied to do a PhD, as, as we were talking about before, and started trying to dig into what, what were some of the origins of mass incarceration? How did the war on drugs become uh, a salient in, in American politics? And that led me to this moment. I mean, th there are some stories about things like, you know, the prison industrial complex, um, but that doesn't explain timing, right? Like, why does this happen in the early 70s? Why do we see this hockey stick increase in incarceration at a particular moment in time? And so that led me particularly to looking at the kind of contestation that happened in the early 60s and late 60s, um, where you start to see law and order politics come to the fore, uh, particularly by candidates like Goldwater and Reagan and Nixon, and trying to explain why did that become so uh, relevant in our politics? And that ultimately led to me studying these two waves of, of, of protest, uh, the, the kind of um, uh, earlier nonviolent and then more protester-initiated violence in the, in the later part of the 60s. So let's talk a bit about um, one of the findings or sets of findings from the paper. And there are many. It, it, it's such a rich paper. Uh, it it uh, takes some time and attention to get through it, but in my judgment, it's it is time and attention uh, that is rewarded. Um, the the finding I'm going to start with is a finding that comes up early in your presentation of your results, and it, it, it's a it, it involves a comparison uh, among uh, counties. So counties in the U.S., uh, as I read it, are the level are that's the level of analysis. And you're comparing counties that are similar to one another, except some counties were exposed to violent protest and other counties uh, were not. Uh, can you talk about what you found uh, in terms of, as I recall, Democratic vote share uh, when you compared those counties to one another? Yeah, well, first, let me thank you for, for reading it so closely and for the kind words about uh, it being worthwhile. And let me also echo a point you made earlier, which is, I think, just really important to underline, which is, before we get to a question about differential effects of violent and nonviolent protest, it's just important to sort of remind ourselves, why are people protesting, right? There is this, like, fundamental in the 1960s injustice that is Jim Crow, that is a brutally repressive uh, state engaging in... Um, a level of extra legal and um, uh, 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 you know sort of terrifying violence against African Americans that is motivating this movement, right? And so then we come to the uh, analysis, which is trying to sort of see you know the puzzle. I'm really trying to get at is like there are people in the black community on both sides of the debate about what are the right tactics. Um, are we going to engage, like a lot of insurgent movements in the kind of decolonizing world, um, a violent resistance against uh, a brutal state? Um, or are we going to follow a model like what we saw in the decolonizing, you know, uh, uh, subcontinent of uh, a Gandhian model of, uh, of, of civil disobedience? 
Um, and that's a live debate in the black community. And there's really good evidence that, for example, if we don't take up arms, um, there are cases where, you know, the Klan is going to come and burn your house down. Or, um, uh, you know, there's a moment where the vigilantes aren't, you know, they're, they're, if they don't see a shot into the air, they might, they might, they might not retreat, right? So, so, so this, is a, this, is a, this is a hard um, live debate in the black community. And into that, I'm trying to say, okay, well, like, there's this active debate, and let's try to look at, in this moment, which kinds of tactics achieve what the activists wanted. Um, and what I find is that counties that were proximate, um, both geographically and, and in time, to protests that had protester-initiated violence, um, and just to be clear, that is defined as a significant property damage, injury, or death, um, and that's a model that's been used by sociologists for a half century, that counties that are proximate to more violent protests see a decrease in democratic vote share. Um, and counties that are exposed to more nonviolent protests see an increase in democratic vote share between 1964 and 1972 in presidential elections. And just to spell out um, for uh, listeners, one of the reasons that that is important, um, if I read you correctly, uh, you suggest early in the paper that uh, within societies, there are dominant groups, uh, or at least one dominant group and subordinate groups. And as politics play out, and as you see conflict within politics, it's often a conflict between two political coalitions, one of which is aligned with the dominant group, the other of which is more committed to egalitarianism and cares about the interests and is, is advocating for the interests of subordinate groups. And as I read you, um, Around the middle of the 20th century, uh, the Democratic Party emerged as the coalition more committed to egalitarianism, and the Republican Party became more aligned with dominant group interest. Uh, first, am I reading you correctly there? That's exactly right. And, and, and so that's why, that's why what you're finding, I assume, in terms of Democratic vote share uh, is, uh, is meaningful in terms of accomplishment or failure to accomplish uh, uh, the goals of the protests. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so, so um, let me underline two things in what you said, but that was a, a, a great uh, summary. So there's a paper um, on kind of looking at a really broad history of race in American politics by Desmond King and uh, Roger Smith. And um, they, you know, to simplify American history into a very, uh, uh, you know, quick, uh, you know, sort of one or two sentences in that model of uh, coalitions, they say, okay, let's imagine there's a white supremacist coalition and a transformative egalitarian coalition. And there's a period and, and that they're flipping power over time. So you've got a period where there's a kind of slaveocracy and the white supremacists are running things. Then we get to reconstruction, the egalitarians flip it. Then you, the reconstruction ends, the white supremacists regain power. And then we get to the civil rights era and the egalitarians uh, regain power. Right? And that clearly, there's a lot of nuance that's lost in that simple model, but that's what I'm building on. And so, so I think it's a really helpful intervention to ground it in the way you did, because what it, too often I think people take the democratic victory as some kind of concern for establishment party politics. And that, that's really not the, the point. The point here is there's a coalition um, that is broad and is, uh, is committed to advancing in a variety of ways, like racial justice, racial equality. And that doesn't just mean the presidency, although that's the measure I'm, I'm looking at uh, most narrowly, but you know, that's going to include, if we think about recent, recent politics, like who gets appointed to the Supreme Court, you know, in recent politics, that might mean the um, federal government is intervening into a local uh, discrimination case in the police force, right? So it's like, there's lots of things happening. And, and, and at, at root, if you're, if you don't have the governing coalition, you, you, you lose a lot of power. Um, and so that's, that's why the democratic, uh, you know, the presidency matters in terms of uh, black interests. Um, not because I care about the Democrats, but because if we're talking about that governing coalition, those, that, that's who comes to embody it, particularly after the 64 Civil Rights Act. So uh, I uh, am a social psychologist. I, I like you, I have a long-standing interest in politics, but I'm trained as a social psychologist. And 
as is true in perhaps other social sciences uh, that employ quantitative methods, uh, certainly one of the things that you hear a lot in introductory courses in my field is the, uh, the, the mantra, correlation does not imply causation. And your argument in the paper is not merely one of association or correlation. You're making a causal argument regarding the impact of uh, violence and protest uh, on a variety of outcomes. And one of the things you do in the paper that uh, is presented as supporting evidence of the causal claim is you use what's known as instrumental variables analysis from econometrics. And you use... um, well, I'll let you describe it, but you you, you have this really um, uh, cr- uh, clever insight as to a potential instrument that you could use. But let's pause, since not every well, not every listener, most listeners are not trained in econometrics. Um, they're smart; they're probably college educated. Uh, but you imagine you're talking to someone who uh, just has no training in econometrics at all. If you were to try to help them understand. Uh, the purpose of that instrumental variables analysis, I've, I've alluded to it, but the purpose uh, of it, uh, the logic of it, and then the findings, how would you uh, uh, walk them through that? Um, the um, core of the instrumental variable analysis is, is this, right? We, what we really want is if we, were, uh, if we could, we would do a, an experiment. We would randomly assign some counties to be exposed to a violent protest and some counties not to be exposed to it. We, of course, can't do that, right? Not only uh, don't we have the powers, but it would be unethical, right? So, so the, the, the next best thing we could do is sort of try to approximate a uh, random assignment of uh, uh, protests to counties that look pretty similar, but, uh, but some one got it and one didn't, right? And what we can do then is try to look for something that is correlated with protest activity but not correlated with, uh, with, with, with voting. And what rainfall does, and there's, there's a body of work that shows you know, basically large outdoor gatherings are sensitive to weather. So people use, look at this for everything from July 4th gatherings to Tea Party uh, protests, that weather matters for gatherings. Um, but we don't think rainfall in spring is driving voting in November, right? So if we find a correlation between rainfall in spring and voting in November, that's, you know, the, the only plausible channel is through something like protest activity. Um, and so what I, so the way to think about what rainfall is doing here is it's acting as a kind of, um, a kind of random assignment of protest. Some places randomly are getting uh, rainfall. If you have rainfall, there's less likelihood of a violent protest. If you don't have rainfall, there's more likelihood. Um, and then there's one other detail in the um, way the paper works, which is, and, and to be clear, I'm building on two economists, uh, Margot and Collins, who used this approach in some earlier work. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated April 4th, 1968. And there are about 137 protests that escalate to violence in the week that, or mostly in the week that follows his assassination. Um, and so because there's this highly concentrated set of violent protests, and to be clear here, when I'm saying violent protests, I'm saying protester-initiated violence. Um, obviously, the state is engaging in violence, too, but I'm particularly interested, in this case, in protester-initiated violence. And, um, and so we can look at right around when King is assassinated, uh, which is in the spring, which is a kind of a different period than in the summer, and see if rainfall in the week that follows King's assassination is predictive of voting in November. And I find it is. And I find, like with the earlier analysis, it predicts a significant decrease in support for the Democratic candidate in the places that are proximate to where these violent protests occur. Um, and, and in one other detail, and I won't go too far into this, but I do an additional set of tests, which are called placebo tests, which is just to say, you know, there's a period just before King is assassinated, or there's a period later in April when there's very few violent protests. Um, and does rainfall in that period predict voting in November? Because maybe maybe I'm picking up you know geography and that some places get more rain, uh, vote more conservatively, and I'm not actually picking up a protest effect at all. And what I find is that rainfall is not generally predictive of voting in November. It's only in the week following King's assassination, which suggests that it's something about the combination of rainfall in that time period, which is very, you know, the only plausible explanation is that it's going through protest activity 
Um, and so that's the way I, I try to make a causal claim and to approximate a random, uh, you know, a, a, a randomized controlled experiment with a natural experiment. So I will likely want to dig further into the findings, but I want to pause for a moment and ask you if you could imagine that uh, one of my listeners is actually um, an activist who is committed to racial justice, say they're, they're, they're organizing Black Lives uh, Matter protests, uh, even though it might seem obvious in light of what findings you've described, if you had a chance to give that person uh, tactical advice, what would your advice be? You asked about the origins of this research. And in some ways, I was looking my whole life for people to help me make sense of the world. And I'm writing this research in part for some, you know, 18-year-old version of myself or 25-year-old version of myself. And, um, and, and so my hope is that there are folks who were able to, who are out there doing the work and, and maybe are wrestling with, does it make sense to uh, engage in violent resistance? There may be a moral case for this, right? The police are shooting rubber bullets at us. They're shooting tear gas at us. Um, should we light a police car on fire? Um, and, and to be clear, I find that violence helps attract media, and that can be good for a cause. Um, and so it's not, it's not a simple answer of whether this is a, a right or wrong decision. Um, and there's some other research, like, um, by um, uh, there's a, there, there, uh, three political scientists, Rhino, Ryan Enos, Aaron Kaufman, and Melissa Sands, who find violence during the LA 92 uprising, uh, you know, had a liberalizing effect on voters. Um, Dan Gillian finds some positive effects of violence. So, so, so you're an activist and you're thinking, like, what's going to help advance racial justice? And there's good evidence to suggest, you know, maybe engaging in violence will be helpful and I think what I want people to also consider is the ways in which it might undermine the very cause you're trying to champion. I, I'm not for a moment suggesting people shouldn't be angry. I'm not for a moment suggesting people shouldn't be militant. I am suggesting that there may be cases where this may not be strategic. And so we can, we can sympathize with people's anger. We can, we can, in a broad sense, think violence might be moral in an eye for an eye sense or in a self-defense sense. Um, but it might not get you in political pragmatic terms what you want, right? And so, so then the question is, well, okay, you're an activist, you're on the ground, and you're thinking about what's going to advance our cause. And at, at, at least as you're weighing these possibilities, the idea that winning elections matters is, is I think, uh, an important thing to consider here. And that in, in the kind of the largest sense, let me put it a slightly different way. There are two reasons people are often protesting. One is to express themselves and another is to persuade other people. And I have been at protests where I'm just angry. I'm not, I'm not out there to think about somebody watching the news tomorrow. Um, and so, so I, you know, I, I understand that level of frustration, but a lot of the work a protest does is not by anybody directly observing it. It's by how it works through the media. And so if, one is thinking about the, the, the persuasion effects of a protest, then you really want to think about, okay, well, what, uh, you know, what's the story we're telling to the media? And there, something like what happened in Minneapolis when, uh, you know, a Native American youth building goes up in flames, that potentially sends a very different message than when the police station goes up in flames or when a small business goes up in flames. And, and, and the story can shift from one about rights and justice to one about crime. And so if we're focused on persuasion and trying to get our message around an injustice that occurred in the public mind, then some kinds of violence tend to shift the conversation away from justice and towards crime and riots. And that's, that's what I find is happening in the 1960s. And I think we've seen a little bit more recently too. Well, just to make sure that I'm clear, what I'm hearing you say now uh, distinguishes among different kinds of violence. So, for example, violence against a police station might be different from violence uh, against uh, um, a small business. Um, but I didn't see the paper 
draw those distinctions. Am I, am I right about that? That's totally fair. And, and, and I, uh, I did not, so in the data I have, I've got, you know, incidents of arson, injury, death. Um, and so I can't, with the data I have, distinguish between whether a small business goes up in flames or not. Um, and so basically it's a, uh, I'm kind of averaging over all of these different kinds of violence. And I, I'm not sure that the, the typical, to be clear, right, in the 1960s, America is 90% white. Um, and so I'm not sure that the average white person is being particularly nuanced about the kinds of violence they observe. Um, but, but I do, I did want to be as sympathetic as I could to that activist on the ground, kind of weighing these kinds of tactics and choices. So in thinking about elections, one analysis you report in the paper is a kind of counterfactual uh, analysis where you ran simulations of the 1968 uh, presidential election. Can you walk listeners in brief through what you found there, making sure to, as much as you can, uh, clarify how those simulations are grounded in your data as opposed to just being sort of uh, uh, some sort of entirely fictionalized uh, simulation? So as you noted earlier, right, I find there is a, uh, you know, it's about a one to two percentage point increase in Democratic vote share when a county is exposed to nonviolent protests. And depending on the model, um, let's call it about a two to eight percentage point decrease in Democratic vote share when a county is exposed to violent protests. And so that is interesting. And, you know, in some ways, the core of the finding is that I do have these differential effects, but, but we also care about is 2% matter. And it might be that 2% doesn't move the needle because in say a particular election, if somebody wins by eight points, then 2% is not politically meaningful at some level. Um, it turns out in 1968 though, it's a close election. Right? So it's analogous in some ways to 2016, where, uh, you know, a 1% shift could matter. And as, as you know, in, in 80,000 votes in 2016 in three states tips the election. Um, so in 1968, Nixon is running against Humphrey. Humphrey is the lead author of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So somebody who is both feet firmly planted in the Civil Rights Coalition. Um, and Nixon is running neck and neck with Humphrey and runs heavily on law and order. Um, and just to kind of situate this, because not everybody uh, was alive then. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't, so I'm reading this. Um, uh, one poll I found reported 81% of Americans, uh, when asked, has law and order broken down in this country? 81% reported yes, they feel like law and order has broken down. So this is like, this is a mainstream salient issue. Um, one bit of criticism I've received is people say I'm overemphasizing the role of law and order. Clearly there are other issues. I, you know, I mean, if, if this is not to say this is the only issue that matters, but I am trying to say it mattered enough to a significant share of voters that it's relevant to kind of consider how did this play uh, out in the 1968 election. Um, and then I take the lower bound basically of that negative effect, about two percentage point decrease and say, okay, let's think about, the 137 counties that um, were exposed to violent protest in 1968. Let's imagine a counterfactual. You could imagine actually to be precise, two counterfactuals. One is Martin Luther King Jr. is not assassinated. Those events don't occur. Another, coming back to your question about the activist on the ground, is the protests do occur, but they don't escalate to violence. That's, again, a hard counterfactual. People are in a state of mourning. They're in a state of grief and rage. So that may be a less credible one, but, but, but worth considering. Um, and had there not been those events, then we might've seen counties nearby vote slightly more liberally. If there had been about a two percentage point shift on average in counties that had then, you know, in this parallel universe, not been exposed to violent protest activity, you know, what does that mean politically? Um, and so I run simulations and what I find is that contrary to uh, a story about Nixon winning on a Southern strategy, the states that are in play are really in the mid-Atlantic and Midwest. And that means and, and, that- and part, and part of that is, is because Wallace is in the race and Wallace- That's exactly right. Peels that's off exactly Southern right. states. Yeah. So, so there are, um, 
you know, there's a third party candidate as hardcore segregationist in Wallace. He takes the deep South. So that's not in play for, uh, for between Humphrey and Nixon. But, but I think even if Wallace had not been in the race, it's not the segregationists who are going to go to Humphrey, right? Like, like, like they're, they're not in play for a guy who passes the civil rights act. Um, the states that are in play uh, are ones that have more moderate politics, uh, both in terms of, you know, and particularly as, as it relates to race. And, and so um, again, like 2016, the states that are the kind of tipping point states are places like Wisconsin in 2016, um, uh, like, uh, you know, Ohio and, uh, and Michigan. And in um, 1968, it's similarly the states I find that are tipping are Delaware, New Jersey, Illinois, uh, Ohio, um, and, and so that says Missouri. So that says to me, you know, part of why law and order worked was it clearly appealed to the Southern segregationists. Um, but it also appealed to a, a set of moderates who were not necessarily, you know, racial equality was not top of their agenda, but they weren't necessarily uh, opposed to it. Um, so they supported LBJ in 1964, Civil Rights Act had just passed. Um, and uh, and then and then went to the Republican Law and Order Coalition in 1968. So your, your paper doesn't provide evidence for this, but uh, I wonder if you'd care to speculate as to the, the kinds of subsequent uh, political and social outcomes that might have looked different if Hubert Humphreys elected president in 1968 versus Richard Nixon. So I think the really big picture in a kind of counterfactual between, uh, you know, Nixon's observed win and Humphrey's possible win is to consider that there's this whole apparatus of punitive criminal justice that starts to get built up. To be clear, it, it starts before Nixon. So there are Democrats who are worried about juvenile delinquency. And um, so there's a kind of war on crime that's, that's beginning before uh, Nixon. But, but, you know, it's important to note that like Goldwater runs on law and order in 1964 and loses. Right. And so, so it's possible that law and order could have been a losing strategy for the last half century. It's possible that tough on crime could have been a losing strategy for the last half century. And it's not, you know, the, the, the other, um, I've got data for a book project I'm working on where we look at um, California polls following the Watts uprising in 1965. And there are Democrats, there's a 50 point shift in support for the incumbent Pat, Pat Brown, who's the governor, a 50 point shift away from Pat Brown, if you thought Brown was lax in how he handled Watts. And the reason I bring that up is Ronald Reagan runs on law and order in 1966 and wins. And, uh, and then in 1968, Nixon runs on law and order and wins. And that sets in motion a set of tough on crime policies that uh, are durable for, um, you know, from 1970 to today and are at, at, at root, some of what this current wave of protest is about is a, is a, is a, you know, is mass incarceration is a, uh, you know, is, is, is uh, you know, why is Breonna Taylor uh, uh, killed in the middle of the night? Because we've got this militarized police that use SWAT team tactics on civilians. And that kind of super punitive criminal justice policy begins in that moment. And so my, you know, I, 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 I want to be clear, the, the Civil Rights Coalition was exceedingly fragile. It's almost certain that at some point it would have fallen apart. So I'm not saying that civil rights would have carried the day for 50 years, but, um, but it's possible we wouldn't have had a war on drugs. It's possible tough on crime wouldn't have become the dominant uh, kind of issue that, that, that Republicans used as a battering ram against Democrats for 50 years if there had been a sense of a kind of more peaceful transition out of the civil, uh, out of the Jim Crow era and into um, a kind of second reconstruction of civil rights. Still focusing on your results. One of the things that you alluded to earlier is that the difference between violent and nonviolent protest uh, is also associated with, uh, and as I read you, causal of differences, not just in the amount of media coverage, 
but how the media frames it. Yeah, so, so, so one of the things that was really fascinating to me about this research as I was kind of kept digging and digging is there's a kind of simple narrative of nonviolence good, violence bad, right? And it turned out there's like a slightly more complicated uh, version of that, which is that what civil rights leaders figured out in the early part of the 60s was that a lot of protests, um, even a big one, uh, would have a hard time getting media if it was peaceful. Um, and to be clear, there are lots of ways a protest can be effective. A boycott can, can you know, desegregate uh, a bus system, as we saw in, in Montgomery. 381 days of people walking miles broke the back of uh, Jim Crow busing. Um, but, but for the protests that really took off in the 60s, again, um, sorry, not again, but, 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 but in significant part, television has also become a mass medium in this period. So, you know, 1950, almost nobody has a television. Uh, by 1960, more than 90% of homes have a television. So, so there's this opportunity to harness media that's really powerful in the early 60s, but activists, leaders figure out that if they go out and they do a peaceful protest, Sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. So there's a, a famous reporter in the New York Times who is quoted um, in a history of this period saying of an of a unprecedented picket line in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, um, a peaceful protest uh, is dull. Blood and guts are news, right? And so if you're a leader, that, that poses a puzzle, right? We need the media um, who has been entirely indifferent to the concerns of African-Americans to become concerned, that is to say, the white media, black media obviously is reporting, black newspapers are reporting on, 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 on black ish, issues and interests, um, but the white media is unconcerned and violence gets the media's interest. And so what activists figure out is if we essentially make ourselves the target of state violence, then we can figure out, we solve this puzzle, which is the reporting will focus on our concerns they, you know, they blood and gore, blood and, you know, if it bleeds, it leads is a kind of a, a, a cliche from television news, um, but it'll be sympathetic press. So this brings me now to the heart of your question, which is that there are um, broadly kind of two sorts of narratives that the media draw upon. And this is not just about civil rights, but, but that there's a kind of these deep cultural mythologies that media lean on. One of them is a kind of rights and justice script, right? Is this a redress of grievances? New York Times reporting on the March on Washington says the greatest redress of grievances uh, in the history of the Capitol, right? Um, and there's another script which draws on, you know, hundreds of years of racist mythology about African-Americans as lawless, which is a crime script. And so there's that kind of deep embedded set of uh, pre-existing, almost like folk tales in our culture. And what the civil rights protests of the earlier period were able to do was to kind of draw on this kind of rights frame and get a lot of very sympathetic coverage that particularly when they were the objects of violence made, um, you know, the, the brutal state out to be the bad guy and civil rights activists as part of a long tradition of rights seeking, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, assembly. Um, conversely, um, the, 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 the more violent initiative, you know, the, the violent protests of the later period, tended to play to the crime script, right? And sort of pro, uh, the white media tended to draw on those stereotypes uh, and, and instead of situating these as, um, as protests, they were riots, they were more criminal events. And that, um, and, and to be clear, there is crime happening. You know, stores are being ransacked um, or buildings are lit on fire. So it's not that that's entirely unfair to the media, but, but the, 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 the crime narrative overwhelms the, the rights, the call for uh, an injustice to be, a wrong to be righted. Um, and so, and, and what I find is that public opinion follows the media very closely. So that's, that's really the heart of it is that, going back to an earlier point, right, in the tension between expression and persuasion, the, the kind of the ways in which violent protests persuade the public are through the media. And if the media is covering this as crime, then that's what the public, the white public uh, focuses on. A skeptic could look at your paper and say, man, these data are from the 19 or for are regarding events from the 1960s and the 1970s. Uh, what basis is there to generalize to contemporary uh, protests? What would your reaction be to that note of skepticism? So I think it's, it's, it's an appropriate note of skepticism, and I think we should be very cautious about generalizing. Um, 
let me offer first some evidence that has nothing to do with my results. Uh, there's a really nice, uh, a really impressive study by uh, Maria Stefan and Erica Chenoweth that looks at 300 plus campaigns, some of which use violent tactics, some of which use nonviolent tactics cross-nationally and finds that the nonviolent campaigns uh, achieve their desired outcomes about 50% of the time and the campaigns that employ violence were successful about 25% of the time. So we've got some evidence cross-nationally, across very different contexts that nonviolent tactics may be more effective and that that might suggest that what we're seeing in the 1960s might apply today. There's other results, um, and this, this, this is more up your alley, um, uh, and I'm forgetting all the co-authors, but Rob Willer, uh, a social psychologist, has done some experiments where people, uh, you know, not just in civil rights contexts, uh, radical environmental contexts, other sorts of um, activists are presented in a, an experimental design where sometimes the tactics are more extreme and sometimes less extreme. And, and what we find is that um, subjects in those studies are considerably less sympathetic to the more extreme, the, the groups when they use more extreme tactics, they disidentify with those groups. So, so, and that's contemporary study. So I think some of this, we might plausibly think is human nature and not something specific to the 60s. Um, and let me give now uh, a couple of arguments against generalizing and then maybe come back to a couple more arguments for generalizing. So, so against um, the media are clearly very different now. It's more fragmented. Uh, there are, you know, some people are getting a Blue Lives Matter feed. Some people are getting a Black Lives Matter feed. Um, the white public is more sympathetic to concerns about racial equality now. Uh, particularly white liberals have seen a really dramatic shift in the last decade in terms of awareness and concern about racial equality. And so that suggests that maybe the dynamics will be different. Um, but, but the kind of the core element of the story is, this, is, is really about how protests are a kind of, you know, John Lewis talks about what we're trying to do is dramatize injustice. We're trying to stage protests to reveal an injustice. So Darnella Frazier, 17-year-old young woman who shoots the killing of George Floyd on her cell phone, is bearing witness to an act of injustice that transforms our politics, right? And that, to me, is an echo of Mamie Till's work, trying to draw attention to the brutal lynching of her son, um, done in a very strategic way. Um, it's an echo of... The, just to interrupt, one of my the quotes of, that I've seen attributed to uh, her, the mother, mother of Emmett Till, is uh, on the decision to have the open casket, uh, I want the world to see what they did to my baby. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, in, in the, that's exactly it. It was a quote I saw, which is an echo of what you just said, which is, let, let the world see what I have seen. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. and, and that... That is at heart a lot of what the, the, these protest movements are about is that there is a, uh, whether it's the Me Too movement or um, Black Lives Matter, is there is a group that has a profound awareness of an injustice they experience. And there's a kind of dominant group, be it whites or be it, uh, in the case of Me Too, more often men who are um, often... Uh, indifferent or unaware or oblivious to the kind of predation that this uh, subordinate group is experiencing. And if you can, if you can, like Darnella Frazier, Frazier bear witness, you can change. There are enough people out there who are plausibly persuadable that you can kind of change politics. And so we saw, I mean, to give an example, the you know 75 year old man who's, who's knocked over in Buffalo and is bleeding out of his ears, that becomes an iconic image that changes, I think, our, our politics to a degree. And, and so, so I think there's still, linking 1960s to now, real power in the images that are propagated by the media. The media are different. Some of those people are seeing these images on Facebook instead of the local news. But, but those images do a lot of work, I think. And, um, and, and, the, and how they work, I think, still has echoes of the past. So if the footage shows police engaging in violent repression as uh, one person on Twitter compiled more than 600 incidents of these clips. That is powerful. Today's Washington Post has a story about um, an activist who's lost his eye uh, in, you know, in, in response to police excess violence, right? So, so those kinds of stories, if the 1960s uh, evidence is, is to be believed, 
how the media cover this, what people who aren't there get through media um, is shaping their perceptions. And, 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 and just to kind of tie it up, while there has been violence in the, uh, there has been protester-initiated violence, most of the violence we've seen over the last month has been focused on police violence and the public echoing what we saw in the 1960s um, in the early part of the 1960s has been quite sympathetic to the cause of Black Lives Matter and these protest waves. And so I think, um, you know, they're not a perfect analogy, but I think some of this generalizes in part because human nature remains fairly stable and, um, and sort of media's taste for drama remains fairly stable and who we think of as good guys and bad guys plays out in kind of predictable patterns. So I think I've made it clear that I really like uh, your paper. Uh, but not everyone does. Uh, and um, I have a quote that I want to uh, uh, put on the table. Uh, I apologize for its length, uh, but I want to share the entire quote. Uh, so this is uh, by the editor-in-chief of Current Affairs magazine, uh, Nathan Robinson, uh, writing in Current Affairs. And uh, Robinson has this to say about your article. Quote, It's bad research because what it does is single out the political effect of riots in a way that allows people to blame so-called inner city rioters and ignore other causes. So it argues that violence fuels negative media coverage, which fuels a political backlash that helps Republicans, which might be true empirically, but as Martin Luther King pointed out, it's grotesquely immoral to make the conversation about rioters rather than looking at what causes rioters to do what they do. Yes, one way to frame the riots is to say riots help Republicans, but why blame the rioters instead of the media for doing the coverage that causes the backlash? Why blame the rioters instead of blaming those who have created a tinderbox in American cities through centuries of racist policies? Why single out the riots' contribution to changes in the Democratic vote share rather than the failure of Democrats to adequately appeal to enough voters? And he's just getting warmed up. Uh, this sort of finding presented in isolation seems to pin responsibility on the least powerful, least wealthy people for an outcome that had many causes. And that's why people object when data nerds pull up charts that say, actually, violence is not politically effective. They, uh, Robinson concludes, uh, I don't think the data nerds should be fired. They know not what they do. But people have just cause for being annoyed by this sort of purely empirical statement, which is not purely empirical at all, but reflects a values-driven decision to discuss some factors rather than others, end quote. Now, in the spirit of full disclosure, I am an unapologetic uh, data nerd, uh, and, and so at least my default inclination was to bristle, to be annoyed by this passage, especially the frankly snotty little they know not what they do aside. But in fairness, Robinson, I think, raises important questions, and his uh, quote is getting talked about. Uh, what's your response to that critique? Yeah, so let me, let, me, um, let me say, one, I am grateful for every reader, right? I am grateful for everybody who engages with the work. The work has gotten better through the rough and tumble of feedback. So, you know, I, I, think, I think Robinson is wrong on every count, but... <laughs> I am grateful for the feedback, right? So let's, and I'm not going to remember all of the kind of lines of argumentation, but um, let me go through about three or four of them that I can remember, right? So one is, um, there's a recurring critique that says, um, you know, why focus on uh, these activists who engage in violent tactics, right? And, and, and I think it's really important here to, think about kind of like, what, what is my point of view here, right? So I think for Robinson, he wants to kind of shift. I, I, I literally, my wife is a filmmaker. So I think about this in some ways as like, as a camera that's focusing on, 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 on somebody's point of view. Um, and Robinson is saying is, don't look at the world through the eyes of a black activist. 
look at the world through the eyes of the media, look at the eyes, look at the world through the eyes of the white majority. And I'm saying, no, no, like my training in African-American studies has me wanting to say, no, I want to look at the world through black eyes and say, what is the, what is the, what is the locus of control that I as an activist have? So, so, so first off, I reject his kind of wanting to decenter black activists. Um, and, and, you know, do we need to think about media agency? Of course. Do we need to think about white people's agency? Of course. But there's a reason someone like Stokely Carmichael or Angela Davis or, uh, uh, you know, the Black Panthers are saying we want to use violent tactics in, in, as a mode of resistance. And it's because they've considered, they, they've considered a world of options and they are uh, now saying we think this is this is a legitimate approach, right? So I want to take their words seriously, and I want to sort of see the world through their eyes. And 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 part of why folks like Ella Baker and Bayard Rustin and Martin Luther King chose the tactics they chose is because white America was not responding, right? So there's, I mean, some of what I observe in in, in Robinson and other critics is a kind of magical thinking that says, well, what if we had a different white America that was responsive to black interests? Well, that's not what we had. Right? There's, a whole, there's a reason people were using the tactics they were because they observed a world in which white people were not uh, responding appropriately. Right? So, 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 so one I, is a point of view point. Right? I am trying to look at the world through black eyes, but more, but more generally through the eyes of a subordinate group. And what that means in practice is that they have enormously constrained options, right? There is discriminatory media. There is, you know, extra legal violence by the state. There is, in this case, white supremacy. But, but they have some capacity for resistance. And, and so, so let us consider those options and then think about the consequences, right? So another thing that Robinson says, and again, other people say this too, is a kind of, um, you know, why are you focusing on consequences, not causes? Okay. And so I think, you know, that's a not unreasonable question. There is 50 years of sociology on causes of uh, urban riots, as they're often called. Um, so, you know, I mean, there is a literature there. It's not uh, like, like, like we can't look to that work. Um, but, but I also think that is a bit of a dodge, right? Because the question is, if you are an I mean, it's, it's, it's what you said earlier, right? If you are an activist today trying to advance your cause, understanding the cause of your anger or the underlying injustice doesn't help you know what might be effective for advancing your agenda, right? So I think if we're going to think about social science as something more than um, just uh, telling us what we want to know, you know, affirming our worldview, then we want to think about a range of questions. And some of those questions are like, are, you know, might there be differential effects of different kinds of tactics? So, so yeah, I think it's important to ask about causes, but I think it's also important to ask about consequences. And he's kind of using a cudgel of let's focus so much on injustice that we essentially, um, as another person put it, sort of center white supremacy to a degree that it becomes total and there is no room in that world for black activists to have any agency, right? So again, I begin with this idea of agency. It is constrained, but it is not, white supremacy is not so total that uh, there's, there's no ability for an activist to engage in something like slow walking in work or slugging like a hunger strike or something like, um, uh, you know, a boycott, right? Um, and then the last point I'll make is... Um, is one about the sort of other causes argument. And this to me is, is sort of an odd claim from him. He's getting a PhD. I, I just feel like he should know better. Um, but again, other people have made this argument. And, and, and it's just, it's, it's the way science works is we try to isolate a cause and, and an effect. Um, and to say that, you know, humidity influences tomorrow's weather is not to say that temperature doesn't influence tomorrow's weather. It's not to say that, um, you know, I don't know, uh, 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 you know, the butterfly in Brazil doesn't influence, but, but, but so, so a recurring critique is like, what about the Vietnam war or what about, and it's like, I'm not saying, I mean, to me, really, that's like an all lives matter kind of argument. You're saying <laughs> this thing matters. And I want to say, no, 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 it all matters. And it's like, well, that's not how science works. So if you're, if you're, if that's your concern, you know, 
that's fine, but take it up with like the scientific method. Um, it's really not uh, a legitimate critique of research, which is trying to isolate one particular effect. And if you do not know that the Vietnam War was a factor in the late 60s, if you do not know that the economy matters in elections, then, then I, there, there are bigger issues than this paper, right? So, so it, there's just a, a way in which it's a kind of anti-science argument that I have very little sympathy for, but it does come up enough that, that I, I, I need to engage with it. So I thank you for, for asking the question. What's coming down the pike for you? Thank you so much for this opportunity. This has been a real pleasure um, and a real gift. And I, the, uh, I, I've loved your questions and I'm, I'm really grateful for uh, this opportunity. Um, I am working on a book project uh, coming out of this. And uh, so that is tentatively called The Protester's Dilemma, trying to speak to this, this puzzle that uh, protesters around the world face of how do we advance our issues. Um, and uh, it's uh, in good shape, but I've got about another 100 pages to write. Um, and part of what's the gift of all the attention to the kind of more technical papers, I feel freed a little bit in the book to go more into the descriptive statistics. There's just remarkable public opinion data from that era that um, speaks to some of the um, complex feelings African-Americans have about uh, both nonviolent and violent protest. Um, whites tend to be, I mean, whether it's, uh, you know, the, the white attitudes are, are surprisingly um, uniform, um, maybe not so surprising, with, a, 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 you know, 80% plus kind of hostility to uh, black uh, mobilization. So it's really... Um, you know, so, so to get, getting at the, the kind of descriptive, uh, you know, what's going on in that moment um, is really important and, and doing more to help situate in response to people like um, Robinson to really underline the degree to which this is a, a moment in which black people are, 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 are engaging in a really considered resistance and to you know, shift the focus away is, to my mind, a real disservice to their genius. Um, but, 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 but also, you know, in looking at public opinion of African Americans, looking at uh, public opinion of whites, looking at um, maybe a little bit more situating, you know, like what is going on with uh, Jim Crow and white supremacy in that moment, really trying to tell a story that's a little richer narratively than I can in a 1200 word paper. So really excited about that. Um, but, uh, but, but it's probably, uh, you know, I got, I still got my work ahead cut, cut out for me. I was just reading, uh, Frederick Douglass's What to the Slave is the Fourth of July speech. Yeah, yeah. And there are two really important things he does in that speech that I am grateful for because they echo things I'm trying to do in my paper that I didn't even realize I was, you know, working in a tradition of someone like Douglass, right? And one is he says, uh, you know, he does this long wind-up of talking about how great America is. Yeah. Uh, in the beginning, the first yeah, third. I, I just saw he, that section for the first time uh, a few a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, Cause, and, cause and, every, and, everyone sh everyone shares like after that. But, but go ahead. That's right. That's right. And I I had the same reaction, which is you know he's got this long, you know, kind of throat clearing praising America kind of wind up. What's that about? And reading it closely, well, he's praising he's, he's praising he's praising America as I read it at the level of principle. But, but I'm sorry. But go that's ahead. Right. Go that's ahead. right. No, no, that's exactly right. But he's, but he's also he's also getting his audience to commit to those principles, right? He's yeah, got a white yeah. audience, and he's yeah. saying you know like like you're. I mean, it's, it's really clever, right? He's saying your forebearers, uh, you know, engage in agitation against oppression, right? right? And so yeah. he gets them to kind of commit to those sorts of values. And then he flips it and he says, but, you know, I am going to see from the point of view of a slave. And he literally uses those words. And then from the point of view of a slave, what is America? Right. Yeah. And, and that, 
shift in perspective is central to what I'm trying to do in this work, right? I am trying to say, from the perspective of the activist, what do we see, right? So that's, that's part of why I just fundamentally reject Robinson's try, attempt to look through different eyes. But the second thing that Frederick Douglass does in the paper, which again, I, 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 you know, I've read this before, but it, it just, you know, I read it with, uh, uh, in a different way this time. He says, he's talking about black humanity. Um, and it's in a kind of complicated clause about the racist uh, uh, courts and, and, and criminal justice system. But he says, you know, what it means to be human is to be moral, intellectual, and responsible, mm-hmm. right? And so the fullness of humanity is a moral, intellectual, and responsible being. And what someone like Robinson and others are doing is saying, we want to concede your morality, black activists. We want to concede your intellectual uh, capacities, but we want to take away your responsibility. We, you know, it, it, the fact that you might advocate for violent resistance to white supremacy is, is, is beside the point, right? And to my mind, that kind of rhetorical maneuver is a denial of the fullness of the humanity of black people. And so, so I, I, I fundamentally reject that uh, uncoupling of rhetoric, which might say violence is legitimate, with considering the consequences of that. Um, to hold someone responsible is to treat them as fully human and to deny them of responsibility is to, uh, is, is to narrow the fullness of their humanity. And so for me, Douglas is a really important counterpoint, not only to someone like Robinson, but to a lot of social science that, 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 that doesn't deal with that, 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 those three things, moral, intellectual, and responsible. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Omar Wasso for taking the time to talk with me. For more information on him and his work, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode where you'll see links relevant to our conversation. Also, if you value Tatter and want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash tatter and you can become a supporter. But if you are a student at the college where I teach, I cannot accept your financial support, so please don't do that. Otherwise, come on in, the water's just fine. No matter what, I simply appreciate your listening, so please keep listening, and tell your friends, tell your family, tell your pets. To offer feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, if you are a Twitter user, you can mention Tatter using the handle at tatter underscore rags or you can go to apple podcasts and post a review and or a rating or you can send a private email to tatter.rags.2017 at gmail.com in any case thanks for listening wear a facial covering when you're going to be around other people outside your household and be well